Right, will you please stand? Turn with me to John 10. This is our New Testament reading. Thinking of how uh, different the Lord Jesus is from other kinds of leaders that God's people have had over them at various times in their history, including the present time. The Lord Jesus says, verse chapter 10, verse 7, So Jesus said to them, said to, again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Amen. Now let's turn to Judges chapter 12. Judges 12. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over... The men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said, No, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters, and he gave in marriage um, outside his clan, and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. 
and he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon the Zebulonite died and was buried at Ajalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Amen. You may be seated. Well, uh, in World War II, invasion of Normandy, there was a famous uh, watchword that was used by the Allied forces around D-Day um, as you had people landing at different places along the coast by sea as well as by air, the paratroopers. And uh, after landing, they needed to gather together. They needed to regroup, converge, coordinate to make their way inland. And one of the difficulties they faced was Um, When we come upon another group of soldiers, how do we know if they are friend or foe, especially at night? Um, And so they use this this watchword. If you ran into somebody you didn't know, um, you were supposed to say flash, and they were supposed to respond thunder. And then the first person, this is important, the the first person uh, had to say welcome, you know, in case somebody, one of the Germans had learned the, the flash thunder part that had learned to say thunder or had learned the flash part, then um, he would know that you were for real because you knew the, the, the ongoing response. And that was a smart way to end with the word welcome because it has a W in it. And of course, if a German had learned this, a last stopgap was that uh, a German would be more likely to say welcome uh, if he wasn't thinking properly. And um, in the Pacific Theater, there was another one. This was even simpler. If a sentry met a soldier he didn't know in the dark, he'd say, say Lollapalooza. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, it, was, it was hard for the Japanese soldiers to say because of the sounds that are common in English but not in Japanese. Um, so just a little modern parallel that sheds some light on the whole shibboleth episode in the middle of tonight's passage. But of course, in this case, the tragedy is that This is not uh, the Israelites using this strategy to distinguish themselves from their true enemies, the Canaanites. The tragedy is that these Israelites are using this strategy to, to distinguish themselves from one another. And that is a sign here that something is very deeply broken in Israel and in their relationship with one another and with the Lord. And so as we come here to the end of the history of Jephthah, I want to start by zooming out a little bit and looking just real briefly, as we've done before various times, at the big picture of Judges. Think about Judges as a whole. Where does it start and where does it end? Judges as a whole starts with Israel fighting against the Canaanites to complete carrying out the conquest of Canaan. But how does the book of Judges end? It ends with the Israels acting like Canaanites, for one thing, and fighting, not the Canaanites, but one another. It begins in war and ends with war, but the war at the end is not war against the Canaanites, it's war 
Israel versus Israel, civil war. The judgeship of, of Jephthah, then, you can really see is kind of a microcosm of that bigger picture of the book. And so it represents then not only another layer down in that downward spiral we've talked about of, of this portion of Israel's history. Uh, Lawson Younger, commentator, points this out. He, he says it's kind of like a signpost pointing even further down. It's, it's foreshadowing the way this book is going to end with Israel imploding on itself in civil war. Okay, so let's take this chapter in uh, three parts, which we're going to call Another Breach, verses 1 through 3, Another Bloodbath, verses 4 to 7, and Another Bridge, verses 8 to 15. So Another Breach, Another Bloodbath, and Another Bridge. Speaking of just a bridge between sections. Um, okay, so first, another breach. So th- throughout this history of Jephthah, I've, I've repeatedly hammered away on that phrase, same but different. Same but different from Barry Webb. Um, and for these first three verses, I want you to think for a minute and see if you can tell what same but different comparison we ought to make as Jephthah has this run-in, let's say, with the Ephraimites. And I can tell, looking out there, that you're thinking... Of course, he's going to take us to Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, when the same thing happens to Gideon. You guys are so smart. Seriously, you can turn back there because it is a very clear parallel. Judges chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Remember back a couple months ago, we went, we went, went through this. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, to Gideon, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went out to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. See, in Gideon's case, there's a different outcome. Right? What does Gideon do? Gideon said to them, what have, I now, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? And then verse 3, their anger against him subsided when he said this. So Gideon makes peace with the Ephraimites when they challenge him in a very similar way. Now, we can't let Gideon completely off the hook. Gideon, good, Jephthah, bad. Because, of course, he makes peace with Ephraim, but not with Sukkoth and Penuel. So even in Gideon's life, there's kind of two sides of the coin. Um, He makes peace with one, but not the other. And so Gideon, from another perspective, actually foreshadows the civil war in this chapter. He's the first Gideon, and then Abimelech, and then Jephthah are three progressive stages of civil war in Israel getting worse and worse each time. Same but different, okay? So if we focus just on the interaction with the Ephraimites, though, that's where there's this contrast. You can see that where Gideon succeeds in making peace with Ephraim, Jephthah doesn't even try. Um, A soft answer, Proverbs 15.1. Do you know this one? A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Very basic principle of human relationships and communication. Turning away wrath is what you see Gideon do in chapter 8, but stirring up anger is what you see Jephthah do here in chapter 12. And the result then is another breach within Israel. Israel versus Israel. Israel was supposed to be uniting 
against their idolatrous enemies. But instead, they are now turning on one another in rivalry. They're kind of jockeying for preeminence over one another instead of advancing the preeminence of the Lord and his name over and above the the pantheon of the surrounding nations, which is what they're supposed to be doing. That's their mission, and they're not carrying it out. They're getting distracted. So you might expect me at this point to explain who kind of who was right and who was wrong in this argument between Ephraim and Jephthah, although um, that's not actually what I think we're supposed to be asking here. What I think we're supposed to be asking is, why this implosion? Why this conflict? Why this internal struggle that is just bad for everyone? Especially when, just a little while ago, Israel was celebrating a tremendous victory over the Ammonites that the Lord had just given to them. And So, in thinking about this, I want to draw another analogy with another period in Israel's history. And that is the kingship of David. This might not immediately come to mind, but I think when you look at them to, side by side, there's some really striking similarities. So you think about this. In 2 Samuel chapter 10, King David wins a major military victory against the Syrians, and it's, it's really striking. It's also against the Ammonites. The Ammonites are the big enemy that David is fighting just before and just after uh, his adultery with Bathsheba in chapter 12. So he has this huge military success in chapter 10, and immediately in chapter 11, you get his sin with Bathsheba. Now think about how Nathan the prophet illustrates the seriousness of that sin, the word picture that he gives in chapter 12 when he talks about the rich man who had all of these flocks at his disposal, but when his uh, guest comes and he needs a, a sheep to serve for dinner, what sheep does he take? He takes the one little ewe lamb that was his poor neighbor's pet and devours that instead. And the consequence for David's sin, when, when, when Nathan gets around saying, you are the man, and David realizes the seriousness of what he's done, the consequence, Nathan tells him, is, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. And much of the rest of David's kingship is marked by what? It's marked by civil war in Israel. Okay, well, let's go back to Jephthah and think, how did we get here? This is this man who, who was so eloquent and faith-filled, it sounded like, uh, in the way that he recounted the, the history of God's saving actions uh, in his speech to the king of the Ammonites. He, he, he leads Israel very valiantly in the power of the Holy Spirit into battle. But now he's taking the lead in this conflict that's going to destroy God's people in the thousands, in the civil war. Well, what comes in between? What makes the difference? Well, the turning point is what we covered last time. It is the tragedy of the sacrifice of Jephthah's daughter in that very sinful and reckless fulfillment of Jephthah's foolish vow. Now, obviously, it's quite a different sin than David's, and yet think of the similarities. Think of that one little ewe lamb. You think about the duty 
the responsibility that both of these men had to protect and to serve these two women who end up becoming their victims. How each of these men sacrifice those women, one literally and one figuratively, for their own benefit. And so in both cases, what's the result for Israel? Well, the result is internal turmoil. It's civil war. It's destructive conflict. Now, you'd be hard-pressed to draw a natural cause-and-effect relationship between these things. But I think the parallels are important, teaching us this broader lesson that when leaders take their eye off the ball and begin to sacrifice on the altar of their own selfishness those that they're supposed to be serving and nurturing and protecting, the consequences, the long-term aftershocks of that are very often much wider than, than just the immediate circle of the people initially affected. What happens there is that a peace has been shattered that is very difficult to restore. A trajectory, a tone has been set that has far-reaching tentacles. It's like when you smash a window in one corner and all of the glass breaks. These cracks in the foundation that make the way for crumbling of the walls in places that you might never have expected. I mentioned Lawson Younger earlier. Um, He points out the parallel between what Jephthah does to his daughter in chapter 11 and what Jephthah does in this chapter to Ephraim. Um, He says this, quote, Just as Jephthah willingly slaughtered his daughter, now he leads the Gileadites to slaughter their tribal brothers. See, in both cases, those Jephthah should have protected and nurtured and led and provided for, instead, he destroys. He should have been willing to die for his daughter, to die for these Ephraimites, but instead he forces them to die for him. You can look at the battle itself, um, especially the, 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 just this wholesale slaughter of so many thousands of people. That should remind us of another uh, same but different comparison we've already made with Jephthah because of the way his life story starts. Remember, Jephthah is this outcast half-sibling of these many um, more respectable brothers that he has. Uh, And he assembles that kind of sketchy band of rough-and-tumble characters around him, uh, which then leads to him being promoted to uh, leadership. See how the, the, remember how the, that backstory of Jephthah is pretty much the same, when you put it that way, as the backstory of Abimelech. In the middle of chapter 11, though, there was good reason to hope that maybe Jephthah would be different. The backstories were the same, but the middle of their stories are quite different. Abimelech was that bramble with fire coming out of it to devour the people who made him king. And Jephthah at first seemed so much better. But here at the end of his story... Jephthah's judgeship actually turns out to be far, far more destructive in terms of Israelite lives lost than Abimelech's kingship was. So this is not only another bloodbath, as that second heading tonight says, it's it's a worse Israelite bloodbath than ever before. And something happening... Um, something happening that's, that's worse than what happened to Abimelech is really saying something, because obviously that was pretty terrible. 
One of the many tragic aspects of this battle comes when you look at it and you think, this was all just so unnecessary. It was so avoidable. It all started, to all appearances, as an argument over a kind of a, a, a slight, uh, somebody being disrespected. Why didn't you include us when it came time to go fight against the Ammonites? But of course, the conflict ends up revealing that the animosity runs so much deeper than just that one instance of disrespect. What's emerging here is a deep-seated sense of rivalry and bitterness between the people of Gilead and the people of Ephraim. They are, they are vying here for respect, for supremacy. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? James asks in his letter. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So we should ask, what are these people passionate about? What are they coveting that's leading to this conflict? Well, I think we could say it's respect. It is the, it's the desire to have first place. I like something uh, Ralph Davis said on this, talking about, how this sort of rivalry and desire for recognition can surface in the church among the people of God today. And he said, he said, we all want to be on Jesus's varsity squad. Nobody wants to be on the JV team. Nobody wants to be on the bench. We want to be included. We want to be respected. We want to be treated as important. We want other people to act as though what we think really counts, what we say matters. And of course, some of those things are good desires. Some of those are uh, good in the, in the right place and in the right proportions. You see, our our hearts are revealed when we don't get those things. When when people disrespect us or don't include us or, or, or don't ask our opinion about something or they ignore what we do say or they dismiss our achievements or, or fail to notice our sacrifices and our diligent labors. Well, what then? How do we react and what does that reveal about our hearts and what we're really living for? Why we're really... Serving, why we're really in the church in the first place. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Of course, the Lord Jesus shows us a very different way. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, Philippians 2. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's based on what? It's based on how we're each seeking to follow the Lord Jesus, who himself took the form of a servant, right? That's the whole message of Philippians chapter 2. How Jesus laid down his life for people far less important than he is. That's each one of us, right? Each one of us is far less important than Jesus. And yet, he treated us as all important to him by taking our sin on himself, by giving his life as a sacrifice in our place. So much the opposite of the kind of leadership or lack thereof that Jephthah shows in this chapter. I think another lesson we can learn from this battle has to do with the the whole Shibboleth episode. I mentioned earlier that the tragic thing here is that instead of working together to emphasize and highlight the things that set them apart from their Canaanite neighbors, enemies, 
Um, these people we find here using this difference in regional accent, basically, to um, reveal and, and amplify the differences among them so that they can identify and destroy their fellow Israelites who are just a little bit different than they are. What sets them apart from the Canaanites? Let's ask that first. What sets an Israelite apart from a Canaanite? It's God's covenant of grace. It's their their family bond through Abraham. It's it's a a place of worship that that centered all of their lives at the tabernacle, or at least was supposed to. There's the word, the law of God, that they all were to know and love and follow together. These are all things that unite the people of Israel that ought to be bringing them together in common cause as the family of God. Let's compare that, on the one hand, some very weighty things that unite them with what separated them. There's the Jordan River. There's their tribal identity. There's apparently their regional accents, the way they talk. And of course, along with those things go, go a whole family history, many generations of gradually growing apart as they live on opposite sides of the Jordan River history tracing all the way back to Joshua, the settling of the two and a half tribes on the western banks. Sorry, the eastern eastern banks of the Jordan. The fact is, the objective truth of the matter is that what united them was so much more substantial, so much more real and solid and meaningful. But you see... Here, here you, you, what, you, what you see here is that what had become most present for them, what had started to loom largest for them in their field of vision, were those superficial differences that provided the occasion then for their sinful selfishness to lead them to align with one another on some other basis than the one the Lord had said should define them as the covenant people. The Lord had given them an identity that was a shared identity because they belonged to him, because they were the people of God. But here they have chosen some other criteria, some other identity uh, to align themselves with that's going to bring the separation within the people of God. This is a chronic disease among God's people in all different times of history. And it's another expression of that spirit of rivalry and conceit that Paul addresses in Philippians that I was talking about earlier. Um, You know, just in common language, the the term shibboleth has come to refer in modern times to any uh, insignificant difference between two groups of people that comes to symbolize the deeper divides between them. That's what a shibboleth is. It's any insignificant difference that becomes a symbol for the deeper divides between them. And this is just something that we need to watch out for. And arguably in these days, uh, as much as ever, if not more than ever before, as our, uh, just the, the way that our culture talks about things outside the walls of the church as everybody acknowledges, become more and more polarized all the time. And there's an opportunity there for us in the church to borrow the slogans, the phrases, the labels 
from that public discourse outside the church and to import it into the church and um, to start to conduct the, our, our, our conversations within the body of Christ um, along the lines of what we see in the rest of culture, which is generally quite unlike the way that Christ teaches his people to communicate with one another and to conduct ourselves. It's easier to lump people together and dismiss them as a class using labels and so forth than it is to do the harder work of of listening to real people and what they really believe and think and to approach our brothers and sisters in Christ not as our enemies but as our spiritual family members, body parts of the same body that we're attached to, and to start there. And, of course, we must make distinctions that the Word of God makes. So this is not an argument against precise terminology and theological words and insisting on the truths of our confessional standards, which are expression of the system of doctrine that's taught in the Scriptures. All these things are important as long as we are making the distinctions that the Word of God makes. Always with an eye towards the way that the Word of God also brings together God's people under the one banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as we draw to a close then, I just want to touch briefly on the last few minor judges that come after Jephthah here. And um, I don't have a lot to say about them, Um, If you're expecting that I'm going to pull out some just amazing uh, point of application from the fact that Elon the Zebulonite judged Israel for 10 years, um, I will leave that to better better preachers, better expositors than I. However, I do want to point out a few things. That's another place where Ralph Ralph Davis helped me. Um, One takeaway here is some things that we don't, uh, something that we don't see. Sometimes it's, it's harder to see the things that aren't there. We have to compare with other parts of the cycle here in Judges. It's something he notices. After other judges earlier in the book, like Othniel, Ehud, Deborah and, Bar- and Barak, and then Gideon, at the end of all four of those judges' stories, Judges specifically says each time that the land had rest. The land had rest. Um, after Gideon, though, Davis points out, you don't see that phrase anymore, that the land had rest. And this is a signal, again, thinking about the big picture trajectory of the book, that there is an increasing unrest in Israel, a, a lack of peace, a lack of shalom. Um, even as God does continue to provide providentially uh, for Israel to have these leaders, one after another, whom they really don't deserve, God did not have to provide these leaders. And yet, there still is there, there's this sense that things are not the way they're supposed to be. There is a, a loss of peace, due in part to the poor leadership of some of the judges that we have recently covered. Another thing Davis notices is the repeated report of each judge's death. We've talked about this before, I think, and um, 
other parts of the book. It's this, this drumbeat, though, here when you have these short, shorter descriptions back to back to back, this drumbeat of then Ibzan died, then Elon the Zebulonite died, then Abdon the son of Hillel the Parathonite died, just as Jephthah the Gileadite died, and all the others before them and all the others after them, provoking in us as the readers, as in Israel, a longing for a better leader to come, a leader of whom the angel could say to Mary that of his kingdom there will be no end. The one who said, I am the good shepherd. As we read earlier, a shepherd who does not devour and destroy the sheep whom God has put under his charge, the way that Jephthah did to his daughter and later to Ephraim. The Lord Jesus is that good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And they will never perish, and no one will ever snatch them out of his hand. Thanks be to God that our shepherd, that our king, is the Lord Jesus, and not the judge Jephthah. Let's also beware. Let's beware as the people of God here at Resurrection, as part of a presbytery, as part of a denomination, as part of the church of Jesus around the world. Let's beware that the spirit of Jephthah not take root among us, that spirit of rivalry and conceit, that self-seeking desire for recognition and respect, Let's make sure that we're focusing not on distinguishing ourselves from each other in a way that's designed to build up our own sense of self-importance. But instead, let's focus on banding together to focus on, around the scriptures, to focus on what sets us apart as the people of God in covenant with him, letting him define us and coming together around that identity that he has given to us rather than the alternative identities we would seek to forge for ourselves. So let's pray. Father in heaven, um, another, another part of this book that does not end cheerfully. Um, the Lord, we're always quick to remember this is the middle of a history that ends in glory. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our good shepherd, our good king. And we thank you that in Christ you have brought us together, breaking down the dividing walls of separation. And Lord, we pray that that which is true once and for all, always unshakably true of the people of God, Lord, that that truth would be more and more manifest Uh, demonstrated among us in the way that we live with one another, with other Christians um, in our own church, in our own denomination, around the body of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would please uh, protect us, preserve us against the breaches that come through our own selfishness and rivalry that lead to the kinds of bloodbaths. that we have seen all too often, um, especially uh, bloodbaths of relationships, churches, 
Help us, Lord, because we know that it is only your grace that preserves us against these things. So, Lord, we ask that you would bring us together and strengthen the bonds that unite us in Christ through our covenant relationship with you who has made us one in him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.